Chapter 20 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 20 The Mystery of Mitchell. On the following Sunday, the time was now late in August, while out motoring with Jerry, Cordelia suggested that they drop in at Rolling Meadows for tea, her secret reason being a desire for a half-hour's visit with Francois. When they mounted Gladys's porch, there was Mitchell with the eager Francois on his knee. Gladys introduced Mitchell, and since Francois refused to leave his perch, Mitchell had to acknowledge the introductions sitting which he did with a courteous modesty containing no hint of mockery. Jerry, experienced man of the world, was perfectly at his ease in shaking hands with and being pleased to meet the former servant. Cordelia, watching, felt approval for the manner of both men. Mother Cordelia, promptly interjected Francois, don't you think that Mitchell looks funny without his other coat? Mitchell, what did you do with your other coat? I'm saving it to give to your brer rabbit when he grows up, Mitchell answered with grave humor, so he can be a big butler rabbit like the one in your picture book. Francois remembered the picture and laughed gleefully. My rabbit will look funny in that coat, won't he? He snuggled closer. I don't care which coat you wear, Mitchell. I like you just the same. Just then, Gladys's new butler with outraged superciliousness, which it was beyond butler nature entirely to conceal, handed the ex-butler his tea, and Francois, insisting that the story he had been hearing be continued, Mitchell drew apart from the others and resumed the interrupted narrative. Presently, Mitchell crossed towards the steps, Francois clinging to his hand, and Francois called to Cordelia peremptorily, "'Mother Cordelia, you haven't seen my rabbit for most a year!' We're going out to see him, and I want you to come along. Cordelia surmised that the visit and the demand upon her had been adroitly suggested to the boy by Mitchell as a ruse to get her away for a private talk. Instead of being averse to such a meeting, she was flutteringly eager, and accompanied the two to the rabbit's private estate behind the garage. Sure enough, Jean, the boy's governess, soon appeared, and Mitchell swore Francois to obedience to Jean, administering a solemn oath with the humorous gravity in which the boy delighted. Two minutes later, Cordelia and Mitchell were face to face in the seclusion of the sunken rose garden. She was the first to speak. Her tone was accusatory, contemptuous. So you decided to end the butlering masquerade and become a man of affairs. It was not ruffled in the least by the rebuke of her attitude. He smiled pleasantly. Yes, I thought I'd better make a change, for rather unexpectedly and suddenly, I came into some money that had long been owing me. Don't you think you can deceive me by this story of having come into money? I know whose money it is you came into, and how you came into it. Gladys's money, and you came into it by blackmail. She would have been at a loss to explain the fierce strength of her anger against this man, had she been asked for an explanation. I should have thought, she went on with more scathing contempt, that you would have been content with the amount of blackmail you've been making Gladys pay you. 
Instead, you make her pay more, ten times more, and you try to cover it all by starting the story of having come into money. His smile was gone. He was soberly alert. One moment, please. Who said I was making Gladys pay me more? Gladys! Our dear Gladys has both a gift and an affection for lies. She has been lying to you. I don't believe it. Gladys has been lying to you. Or else... He broke off, a swiftly dawning thought in his eyes, and regarded her with sharp intentness. Or else... He continued his intent gaze. Or else... She prompted, mockingly. Uh, pardon me if I seem abruptly to change the subject of conversation. Mr. Franklin is your lawyer. How well do you know him? How far do you think you can trust him? He's my lawyer. That should be answer enough, she replied haughtily. But how far is he to be trusted? I had a little talk with him the other day, and from the way he spoke... He checked himself, then shot out a sudden question. Have you ever, by any chance, let slip in Mr. Franklin's presence any of the facts of Gladys's situation? This was distinctly none of Mitchell's business. He was most presumptuous. A lie was thoroughly justifiable. So she lied, and lied convincingly. I have not. Then Gladys is lying. No one is extorting further money from her. Against her will, Cordelia was convinced that Mitchell was speaking the truth. Pardon me if I intrude so far as to give you a bit of advice, he continued. About Mr. Franklin. From his manner to me. Well, he's a clever lawyer, no doubt of that. But I wouldn't trust him too far. I suggest you don't mention anything about Gladys to him. And do not mention anything else to him that might ever be used against you or anybody else. I believe that I am competent to form my own judgments and guide my own actions she returned stiffly. He accepted her rebuff, and dismissed the subject of Franklin with a slight bow. While we are on the subject of my blackmailing Gladys, I want to give you the full truth about that matter. In fact, since I am once more myself, I'd rather like to have you know all the truth about me, or at least almost all. Including the mystery? Including the mystery. He was smiling again. Only, as I once warned you, you'll find it a poor mystery. Really, no mystery at all. First, as to the black melee of Gladys, I plead guilty. I've made Gladys pay me two thousand a month all the while I was with her. I did it for Francois' sake. Every penny of it is invested for him. Again Cordelia was convinced he was speaking the truth. Suddenly, she remembered the letter she had found the day she had searched Mitchell's room. The letter had referred to money he was investing. And before she could check herself, a question leaped from her lips. The letter I found in your coat spoke of investments. Were they investments for Francois? His face was suddenly tense. What letter? he demanded sharply. Too late, she saw her slip. She decided dignity would be her best manner. You know very well I suspected you, and was trying to find out things about you. I searched your room and found a letter. It was typewritten, spoke of large drafts you had been sending, and was signed J. 
he regarded her searchingly for a moment, then said slowly, If I remember that particular letter correctly, it told you nothing further. It did not, but it made me ask myself a lot of questions. About me? Yes, and why you should have that kind of a letter written you. I think I understand. I think your questions can be answered. I'm not saying this is the full answer. Can be answered by one fact which you are well acquainted with. I was trying to conceal my identity, and desired to have no clues about which might connect me with my past. This seemed a trifle vague, but it was a sort of answer to the many questions that letter had aroused in her. Why have you gotten this money for Francois? His smile had once more returned. Haven't I already made that plain to you? Because I wanted some protection for Francois, in case Gladys ever does some utterly wild thing, of which she is thoroughly capable. And because his father was the best friend I ever had, and I feel that it's up to me to look out for my friend's boy. I have twenty-five thousand put away for his care and education. That's absolutely all there is to my blackmailing story. Reluctantly, she began to feel a hesitant, dubious admiration for this man. She rather liked his humorous smile, now bold, now teasing. She did not know it, but her own face had begun to relax into a smile. Then that brings us to your own story. Remember, a few minutes ago you promised to tell me. The Great Mitchell Mystery. He was laughing softly with dancing eyes. She became aware that he had rather nice eyes. Yes, the mystery of why you became a butler. All right. A promise is a promise. Here goes. But sure you're all braced for a shock? Yes. Go on. Remember I warned you that the great mystery was that there was no mystery. That the great surprise was that there would be no surprise. All ready for a shock like that? He was just teasing her, and she knew it. But nonetheless, his light words whetted her expectancy, her suspense to a keener edge. I'm ready. Go on. Well, I became a butler because... He hesitated, still teasing. Yes, yes. Because I was broke. Broke? I was broke. I needed the money. He chuckled. I told you the only real point to the solution of my mystery was its utter simplicity, its utter obviousness. I went to work for exactly the same reason that every other man goes to work. I needed the money. Her face had gone blank. She felt as though something very large and brilliant had been deflated with dizzying suddenness, as though she had been cheated by some swift, amazing trick. Is that, is, is that all there is to it? she stammered. Absolutely all there is to it. But to, to go to work as, as, as a butler? When a man's hard up, he turns to the thing he can do best, or the thing which will pay him best. That's natural, isn't it? and very simple. She was beginning to understand how, how flat it was. But the thing was too far outside her experience, and the range of her thoughts for her to understand it fully. He saw the bewilderment in her face. Perhaps I'd better explain a bit. Remember what I once told you about how I paid my way through college, by working in eating clubs during the college year, 
and in big resort hotels and country homes during the summer. That was all true. Naturally, you don't know about such things, so I'll tell you that there's nothing a poor college chap can do which will pay as much, or at least enable him to save as much, as working in big resort hotels and summer houses. Menial, perhaps, but it gets you the money. You have no idea how many college boys are doing just that. Also, some college girls. Naturally, the better you are, the more money you get, and I decided to become the best. Besides soldiering, butlering is the one trade I know, and if I do say it myself, I certainly am one good butler. I challenge the world. So you see, at Rolling Meadows, I wasn't a fake, and I wasn't really masquerading. I was just an honest-to-God butler working at his regular trade. Does this line of talk make things any simpler? She nodded slowly, still dazed. But you're going back to be a butler after, after being something better? For you had been a captain, hadn't you, or something? That brings me to a situation which a rich girl like you, a girl who has never been caught in a financial trap and had to pull herself out, simply cannot imagine yourself ever being up against. So, since experience cannot help your imagination, perhaps I won't be able to make the thing plain to you. It was like this. When the war was over, I found myself with a bit of an income. Nothing big, you understand, but enough to live on comfortably. My father and mother had died during the war, and of the heirs mentioned in the will of an aunt, I was the only one still living. The money was all in securities, and I left it there. Since I had a fair income, I decided to finish the technical education the war had interrupted. So I lived that life for a year, took things easy, spending every cent, was quite a swell about the third rate, had my smart little car, nothing like yours, of course, and things like that. Studied pretty hard, but otherwise I was one of the lilies of the field, and enjoyed being a lily. Well, in the meantime, a friend of mine had needed backing in a business venture, and I had let him have all my bonds to put up as security. About a year ago, when I was at the height of my joyous glory, thump, my friend was wiped out. There I was, suddenly, without an income, not a dollar in my bank, no idea where I was going to get a dollar, and with no end of social obligations. I was by way of being a social favorite, or thought I was. A giddy social favorite suddenly gone broke. Imagine my fix if you can, but you can't. He laughed at the memory of his predicament. Cordelia had a vague but most uncomfortable sense that this thing had somehow become acutely personal. What did you do? she asked hurriedly. Went to work. What else was there for a chap in my fix to do? he demanded. Went to work at the one paying job I really knew, being a butler. Since I'd known Gladys in France, as I've told you, and had a certain influence with her, I made her take me on. I've saved, on the average, 150 a month while I've been Gladys's butler, out of wages and tips. How many young doctors or lawyers save that much? You mean to say you've taken tips from Gladys's guests? At her shocked tone, he chuckled again. I took tips from every one of them, except from you. You didn't offer me any. 
that's one grudge I still hold against you. And why shouldn't I have taken tips? I was a regular butler, and all butlers take tips. Besides, as I told you, I needed the money. I was saving towards a stake. Shocked, are you? That's because you rich young ladies of fashionable leisure, never having felt the need of a dollar, can't put yourself in the place of a person who has simply got to have money. He mistook her wide stare, her parted lips, for a look of bewildered pity. He hastened to reassure her. Don't feel sorry for me. I don't deserve it. The world's full of people doing more or less the same thing. And, really, it's not hard at all. If a fellow's caught in a fix like mine, why, if he's willing to work, and is moderately honest, and does not have any false pride, and isn't afraid of people, and is able to see the points of the great human comedy, why, there's nothing he can't do, and have a good time doing it. She again had the sense that his remarks were somehow personal. She made haste to veer away from this discomfort. It's really true, then, that your only motive was just to make money? My dominating motive, yes. Except for necessity, I would not have taken up my old trade. Of course, there were other motives. I'd long had it in for Gladys for her attitude toward my friend. Remember, it was not because she believed him a bigamist that Gladys grew ashamed of him. A lot of otherwise decent chaps, caught by the wild mood of Paris of those war days, forgot their Puritan morals and followed where fancy led. Remember that Gladys grew ashamed of him, once his glory flickered out, because he had been a working man, a mechanic, was ashamed of him before she had heard anything against him or had heard of his death. Being in Gladys's house gave me a chance to make Gladys writhe. And believe me, I'm not through with her yet. Wait till the right time comes. His closing words came out incisively, almost with a vindictive snap, in sharp contrast to the humorous, half-quizzical tone of all the rest of what he had been saying. But instantly he was again smiling. I shouldn't have said that last. Sometimes my brain falls asleep while supposed to be on duty, and then my tongue wags just as it crazily pleases. So forget what I said. As if to cover his slip, he immediately went on. You were asking me about my other motives. I've always been a bit of a, well, you might call it a plain and fancy fool. Was always ready for anything if I saw a chance for fun in it. That part of my nature was perhaps another motive, a very minor motive. At any rate, it's better than a comedy, acting the butler to Gladys's friends and being treated as a butler by them. And some of the things they've said to me, and before me. Undoubtedly there is a streak of the devil in me, for I've certainly had a lark. He grinned somewhat impishly at his memories. The next moment his smile had undergone yet another change. Was challenging, daring, dancing, held direct upon her. And these last few weeks, there has been still another motive for playing the mad of mystery and exaggerating the part a bit. Really the biggest motive of all. What was that? To excite your interest in me. What? From the day I first saw you, I've been interested in you. A cat may look at a king, you know, and a butler may look at a... Uh, I haven't the right tag to finish that sentence with. But I couldn't expect you to look at a butler. Not unless the butler was unusual. Say, a man of mystery. Half the things I've done since you came to Rolling Meadows, I did with the great purpose of puzzling you. 
making you curious. Am I not honest? Outrage was beginning to swell in her, but she had a swift suspicion, and a question she had been asking herself over and over these many weeks, she now asked him. That night you let me in, and picked me up. You started to tell me something, or ask me something. What was it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. His impish smile was yet more daring. That was just a carefully thought-out little trick of mine to make you think about me. Make you curious. Was it pity or curiosity that some poet once remarked was akin to love? As for me, I staked my chances on curiosity. I'm sure you get what I'm driving at, for you will recall I once listed myself as one of the men you might marry. She had grown furiously red. Of, of all the nerve! Oh, I had the nerve all right. I've admitted that. My nerve is my fortune, sir, she said. Also, I rather like and believe in myself. I haven't the money or the position of the estimable Jerry person, and never will have. But otherwise, I have just as good qualifications for a husband. I recommend myself most heartily. She tried to say something, choked and lost her chance, for he was off again. And now you know all there is to know about me. My past, my present, also my future purpose. Oh, yes, I should have mentioned that the friend I loaned my securities to finally got himself untangled and has squared himself with me. So I have my little income back, and my sweating brain cells are going to add to it. No, you don't know quite all about me. There are two things you still don't know. First my real name. That's not important, and never will have the slightest significance. Mitchell is just as good, and means just as much. I'm merely holding my real name in abeyance for a little personal reason. Second, you don't yet know one other detail of my relations with Gladys. That also I am holding back for a personal reason. Until, I might say, the market suits me. A man is entitled to two minor secrets in his life, isn't he? Oh, yes, there's a third thing you don't yet know about me. Now, I wonder if I should mention that. With the last sentence, his manner had become grave and hesitant. She should have known him well enough by this time to have suspected that he might be laying a trap for her. But with his two exceptions, he had again adroitly aroused her curiosity, thrown her off her guard. The third? What is that? He flashed his bold, dancing, whimsical smile at her. You don't yet know whether I'm going to be your husband. She stiffened, gasped, glared at his final outrage. If you feel that I have not yet proposed to you in the proper set terms, please consider I have now formally done so. I'm going to the house, she exclaimed. Yes, he agreed pleasantly. Perhaps we had better be strolling back to Jerry. Smiling with whimsical delight, he followed her out of the garden. End of chapter 20 Recording by Todd